All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Compliance Guy. Uh, this afternoon, I have the opportunity to sit down with not only um, a good friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, uh, but he's also a colleague and somebody that I've worked with now for almost 15 years. Um, he is uh, consistently making appearance on the Compliance Guy Live. Um, he has a segment that we do called What's Eating Scott Craft? But today, rather than talking about What's Eating Scott Craft and doing a quick uh, five-minute, ten-minute segment, I thought it would be a great opportunity for he and I to sit down and have a genuine conversation about a service line, if you will, that continuously creates problems for providers. Um, incident two is a type of service that can be rendered in a physician practice setting, and we'll get into the details of that as we get going here in just a minute. But I think the problem is, if you look back in history, and even if we just go back to like 2009, between 2009 and like 2020, um, there were more than uh, uh, 10 documented changes to the incident to billing provisions and to the rules. And, you know, the one thing that I tell providers is if you're going to use these services, which I, I really don't suggest you do, but Scott will talk more about that uh, as we get rolling with his segment here. Um, I tell him to proceed with caution. And, you know, it doesn't matter how long these type of services have been around. Uh, there are always providers and their staff that don't get the message or that they just don't want to understand the message. And as a result, it leads to a lot of problems. And Scott and I, uh, throughout this uh, podcast, are going to talk a little bit about some of the uh, cases that we've been involved with and some that we are currently involved with. But I think first and foremost, Scott, let me welcome you to the show. Again, for those of you that don't know, uh, Scott and I are colleagues. Uh, Scott is one of the senior compliance consultants within Doctors Management. Uh, he is an absolutely phenomenal auditor. Uh, he is very well versed in regulatory compliance. Um, and for me, it's, it's a privilege uh, to get the opportunity to work with a healthcare professional like Scott. Uh, as I said, he and I have been working together for about 15 years now. And um, I'm never uh, 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 short of amazement with the things that Scott's able to find. So, Scott, again, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for engaging with me today and for bringing critical information to our viewers and or listeners who are taking time out of their day to listen to us. Thanks, Sean, and I appreciate your friendship and that, that warm introduction, uh, and it's it's been a real pleasure to work with you in multiple places over the years. Um, incident to billing. So I think uh, you started to go down the path when, when I talk about incident two billing and, and clients ask us about incident two reviews, specifically for Medicare, uh, as they have the most onerous rules. I, I try to say, you know, maybe don't do it, right? Whenever I'm asked to teach about incident two, I always say and give you the five minute presentation. Don't do incident two. But I think it's hard sometimes, and I get it. It's hard for uh, physician groups to say, well, you're asking me 
to do the same service when I could potentially earn 100% of an allowed charge for 85% of an allowed charge. And that's hard to let go, right? That's not that's a not insignificant amount of money. I mean, if you're seeing, you know, be conservative, if you're seeing four patients an hour, we'll say five patients an hour, that variance could easily work out to be, you know, 90 to $100, right? And that's not an insignificant amount of money across your Medicare patient population. So, so one of the things I've been thinking about is just being thoughtful about if you are to do an incident two policy for Medicare, if you're going to bring in a nurse practitioner, bring in a physician assistant, how do you manage it throughout the organization to make sure that, you know, the song I'm thinking of is that old song like Let It Go. I think it's from one of the Disney movies that when you're budgeting incident two, it's not an all or nothing proposition. Right. And so you shouldn't expect to say, I want this nurse practitioner working for me under incident two for Medicare. And these claims are going to go out under me as the physician 100% of the time. I think that's a pie in the sky, um, unrealistic fantasy for all of the reasons that we understand when we audit charts, right? When we see patients, any role we have in the healthcare system, you know, patients are going to come in and they're going to present presumptively for follow-up treatment for an established condition. And then they're going to say to the provider, well, by the way, I've been dealing with a sore throat or allergies or a headache or something that's going to precipitate new treatment or something that the patient is going to tell the provider in terms of management of the chronic conditions or whatever the presenting problem is, that's going to lead the nurse practitioner or PA to make a change. And then incident two is out the window. But people within the billing infrastructure that I should say the, the the intake treatment coding and billing infrastructures have to understand what those checkpoints are to understand, okay, we're not going to get every service billed as incident two. We have to say, well, this service should go out under the nurse practitioner because they had to change the plan of care. This service should go out under the physician assistant because they had to write a new prescription. Just understanding you know, rather than looking at it as incident two is all or nothing for the work of the nurse practitioner or the PA. Be a little I agree. And, you know, here's the thing. Um, and I, and I, and I feel bad for a lot of providers um, that get rung up by the department of justice uh, after an investigation by the office of inspector general or something that's been escalated as part of a key TAM or a whistleblower um, <clears throat> because a lot of times what I find are these providers who are reliant upon quote unquote consultants and individuals who hold a variety of certification designations to provide them with accurate information. And they, they hire these individuals, they pay these premiums because they look the reason why somebody goes to medical school is not to learn how to run a business. It's not to learn how to, you know, code a claim. It's to learn how to restore an individual to an optimal level of functionality. But the problem is because it's the provider's name and NPI number that goes out on every single claim they bear the burden because in the rules, it basically says you should have known. You know, your response. That's right. That's right. So 
talk a little bit, if you would, and help our, our listeners, our viewers to understand that, you know, when a patient, because you started going down that path, right? When a patient returns who's under an established plan of care and they return with an exacerbation of that condition or they present with a, oh, hey, while I'm here, by the way, what does that do to the incident two billing? So the one thing I did want to say before I get into that, when we talk about the doctors, I say this to the doctors all the time. When you are billing based on the work of other providers, when you're billing based on the documentation of anybody else in the entity, once you sign that chart, it's almost like signing a mortgage or buying a house, right? Like once you put your name on that paper, you own all of it, right? And I think that's a distinction that, that providers have to understand because you're right. They mainly want patients to recover, to, to get better. Now, you know, to, to me, when I think about incident two, the physician sees the patient, the physician establishes a plan of care. Now, that is essentially the roadmap under which that patient will be seen subsequently by the nurse practitioner or the PA. In essence, that is what the 15% extra is for, that physician's expertise extended to the nurse practitioner or physician assistant in service to the patient. Because we can argue about Medicare's rigor of their Internet 2 policy versus what other insurance might pay for, but at the end of the day, these are their rules, these are their agreements, and that's the terms. They're saying, look, for the expertise of the physician assistant, we pay 85%. For the physician assistant to execute against the physician's plan of care, we pay 100 So it starts with a physician's plan of care. And to right. me, when I think about incident two services, where does that leave us? That leaves us with two types of services that probably pop out to me the most. Well-managed patients with established diagnoses who essentially need to be monitored but tend to have good self-care. We can sort of rely on these people to come in and we're going to look at them. They're, they're in all likelihood going to be fine. But there again, that's that checkpoint, right? So when the patient comes in and you say, hey, you know, your glucose readings are great. Blood pressure numbers look great. We're not going to change a thing. We'll see you in six months. Okay, that's fine, right? But where that first filter comes in is if the patient comes in and says, well, you know, I've been experiencing symptoms, right? Or I'm having a little bit of trouble with management. And the provider says, well, we're going to increase this medication a little bit, right? So now we have to understand that's not an incident to service. The second one, physician treats a patient for an acute injury. And I, I say injury specifically because the ones we most commonly see are like orthopedic injuries, something like that, where the patient is established on a recovery timeline, that recovery timeline tends not to deviate. I mean, sometimes it will, you know, the patient may re-aggravate something, but at that right. point, the nurse practitioner is just coming in and looking at the patient and monitoring their recovery, not changing anything and then saying, well, okay, now you're healed and you don't need to come back anymore. To me, those are fundamental incident to services, probably the best two ways to, to do that kind of work again, have to understand when that's going to deviate and you have to understand if the patient is going to be in your care for over the long term, how does the physician remain involved, right? Because you know that's the second piece of that. The physician is supposed to remain actively involved, undefined, nebulous term, in the care of the patient. What does that mean? Right. And <clears throat> to your point, what they say is at intervals that are considered reasonable, right? So, 
you know, that comes down to how you actually structure your internal policy. And I talk about this all the time, right? Everybody wants to focus on the building of a corporate compliance program. But the meat of any compliance program are how well your policies are structured, but beyond that, how well they're actually adhered to by right. the entire staff. So, um, you know, a, a couple of things, right? Because we're talking about CMS, and obviously, you know, Paul Spencer and I talked about CMS in an earlier uh, podcast segment today. And we talked about CMS really being the gold standard by which all insurance companies, for the most part, you know, really look to CMS for policy guidance, and then they sort of adjust on the flyer. They adjust for Fiddle with it a little bit. That's right. They, that's right. They, they adjust it so that it fits to the specific plan. But here's, here's where I was going with this, right? Because with commercial payers, and I think this is the other area, a lot of folks don't realize that the commercial payers have no problem escalating something to the district attorney or escalating something to the Department of Justice. Uh, I, I have cases where this is going on in Illinois right now. I have cases down in Puerto Rico, cases in Miami, Florida. I have cases in Texas. Um, I just came off of a huge federal case. It was a, a criminal health care fraud case in um, Kentucky and Indiana, uh, whereby they went after the provider for billing services that were rendered by ancillary and or auxiliary staff without the proper supervision requirement. And I think it's going to be important for you and I to talk about supervision requirements in a minute. But I want to throw a monkey wrench into this. Commercial payers. Because commercial payers, as it pertains to Incident 2, create all kinds of noise and wreak all kinds of havoc on providers. Because, you know, an insurer may say, we don't recognize Incident 2, but if they're processing claims on behalf of Medicare under a Medicare HMO or a Medicare, Medicare managed care, then they do follow Medicare guidelines. So it's, it's not just the commercial payer, it's what plan or plans are you participating with for each of those. So I think that's absolutely right. And, and, and one payer I've noticed, United Healthcare, they will often, when I'm doing policy searches, they have a fairly decent policy layout for their Medicare Advantage plans that tends to model fee-for-service Medicare in certain ways but their commercial products might not. And so I think to back up to your point about the compliance plan and program, that's a good point to me, right? I think sometimes we go into practices and we ask to see a compliance plan and we get handed this, you know, massive document that addresses all manner of different things and, and you know, is essentially a bunch of things sort of stuck together in certain ways. And to me, you know, compliance is about execution. It's about putting people in positions to execute properly based on their role within the organization. And so when we think about different products within an insurance company, right, like this is where I wouldn't expect the physician to know that, but I would expect people to be trained to put the clinicians into the right position so that when they see patients, these claims get billed properly based on the benefit plan that they have. Or if you want to define internally, what is the involvement of the physician in a reasonable way? 
somebody has to prompt the physician, right? I mean, I did an incident to review once where I'm going through the documents and I'm like, well, I have to find this plan of care because I can tell from the visit I'm auditing that nothing was changed. But now I need to affirm that the physician created a plan of care. And I had gone back five years and I still had not found a time where this patient had seen the physician. And whatever you choose to define as reasonable, I think for the vast majority of us, that would not be within that construct of reasonable. But I doubt Absolutely. the physician, you know, I doubt the physician walked in and said, well, I, I never need to see these people. It's just there wasn't a structure put in place to make sure that an atmosphere of compliance was created. And the last point I'd make on that, going back to what you'd mentioned about some of the legal struggles that you'd seen, you know, a lot of times, look, I think people end up in those situations, not because they're maliciously bad actors. Sometimes they certainly are. Sometimes you just have nobody in the organization with an eye on policy. You're creating something that optically looks terrible. And by the time the, the government finds it, by the time a payer refers you to the Justice Department, there's such a body of non-compliant work that it's you're almost unable to explain how it could have happened, but it really just started with non-attentiveness to compliance throughout the organization. Absolutely, and I think it, it it ties back into, you know, one of the you know, everybody says seven steps. I tell you, there's eight steps because the risk assessment aspect of it. But let's just stick with tradition, right? Seven steps of a compliance program, which is training and education. And for me, I think that's where the majority of compliance programs fail is there is a lack of training and education that gets rolled out to the providers. You know, look, you could tell your coders and auditors until you're blue in the face what the guidelines and regulations and policies and, you know, uh, guidance documents say you're supposed to do. But until somebody sits down and puts it into black and white for the providers, they they continue to do whatever it is. And look, there's no doubt there's a level of bad actor out there, just as there is in any industry, right? I mean, you know, one only has to look as so far as the OIG exclusion list. But what I would tell you is that I think the vast majority of providers are trying to get it right. And the problem is we have these quote unquote consultants and we have these individuals. It's like what Paul Spencer and I were talking about earlier. You know, you know, three letters after your name or rows of letters after your name doesn't mean that you're you're able to give information in a way that is legally sound because you're not a lawyer you know it's just right. like i tell auditors all the time don't try to be a physician or a nurse practitioner or a pa unless you have that designation after your name you know look you and I hold a lot of different certifications. I think we're proud of those certifications. We worked hard for those. But what the certification basically does is it creates a foundation, right? It doesn't right. teach you how to research. It doesn't teach you how to be a, a writer. What it does is it, it tells a prospective employer or it tells your employer that you were able to read, retain, and regurgitate information on a test, right? That's what Pretty that's much. what getting three letters after your name in a lot of circumstances mean. And I'm not I'm not talking badly about having certifications. Again, I mean these these certifications, this education that I have beyond my formal education are the reasons why lawyers 
uh, attorneys, law firms, clients around the country utilize mine and yours and others in our organization service because we 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 are educated, right? But it doesn't mean that I am qualified to opine on every single topic that comes before me. This is why we have subject matter experts. People need to find their lane and they need to stay in that lane because quickly, you know, look at, here's a great example. In 2017 or 2018, uh, I was working with one of our uh, former colleagues, John Burns. Um, great good guy. Old John Burns. Uh, good old John Burns. Oh, yeah. I miss the guy. Um, but, you know, he was with me. Um, actually, you may have been there, too, because this may have been right around the uh, time that John was starting to transition out. Uh, we were at um, we were in Florida at one of our clients down in uh, Lauderdale. And I had to step out of one of the meetings that we were having with the chief compliance officer. I think you were actually there. I don't I, I don't think I never worked there with John, so I don't think I was there. But go on. Well, this just confirms my wife's uh, my wife's uh, suspicion about my memory is horrible. It doesn't um, get better as we get older. That's for sure. No, it doesn't. But what I was going to say is I had to step out of a meeting with the chief compliance officer of this health system. And I had to take a call from the office of the inspector general, um, one of their special agents, because they were trying to decipher the incident two billing provision guidelines. And they were trying to develop a study to help ferret out fraud, waste, or abuse. So think about this. Even the government who publishes this stuff struggles with their own information. So if the government who produces this stuff struggles, how is it possible that physicians, you know, can get it right? Especially with, you know, 10, 12 changes, revisions, updates that were done since 2009. It, the bottom line that I'm trying to convey is incident two is a pain in the butt. It's very difficult. Um, and it is a pain because there is just a lot of things that you have to track and a lot of things that you have to understand subject to specific payer types and subject to changing at the whims of the government, frankly. And so, you know, I, I certainly can understand why the OIG would ask you to do that. And I can understand why they wouldn't understand presumptively a government policy, because very few people that I speak to have a great handle on incident two. And I think some of that is stuff we've talked about. It's the blurring of government plans and private payer plans and Medicare Advantage plans uh, and who credentials who. And, and, and so to walk it back a second to talking about credentials and things of that nature, you know, to me, a lot of that is framework, right? Because I think what happens to physician practices sometimes is you can always pay somebody to tell you what you think you want to hear. You can always pay somebody who's good at coming in, listening to you talk, and then telling you what you think you want to hear, or what they think you want to hear. And, you know, I think we work on a framework of compliance, right? I think we work on a framework of, I may tell you what you don't want to hear. I may tell you to pump the brakes on something, and that I may have to spend a little more time helping you to understand what is a very complex policy, right? And so when we decided to talk about incident two today, I thought about that framework for a while, right? I think so often when I go into clients, they think of incident two as 
I want to do this all the time. It's all or nothing. It's just this is always the way it should be. And it puts you in a box that is not realistic in my mind for clinical practice. And I think when you frame it that way, right, like if I go to the doctor and I say, well, what percentage, you know, if I told you that 100% of your patients that came in today would require no changes to their treatment plan, I mean, hats off to you. It might make you like the most successful first pass-through doctor in the world, but it's still not how it works, right? right? People present these problems that that they just thought of, things they don't want to tell a nurse. And so, you know, look at it as a policy that you have to implement with parameters, right? Parameters around compliance, because I mean, we've seen practices, big organizations in some cases take major hits over incident two errors, where it just, you know, the government, to your point earlier about not understanding how incident two works from a policy perspective, they come in and they're just looking at the doctor and they're saying, well, how did you see 24 hours worth of patients today? And it just doesn't, they don't get it, right? You know, you, you raise a great point. Let's talk about the case that we have um, in the Northeast right now, right? So this is a provider, um, and obviously we're going to be very careful about what we say because this is still an ongoing matter. Um, but this is an individual who was raided by the FBI very early in the morning, taken into custody, taken down to the field office, and by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, this provider was arraigned in front of a judge via Zoom. Now, the government is alleging that the provider violated the impossible days. And I think this is exactly what you were talking about. This is a prime example of an FBI agent in this situation who wrote their report, who basically said, there's no possible way a provider, one doctor, could see this number of patients during the course of the day. And, and, and it was really interesting, right? Because, one, they didn't take into consideration the utilization of non-physician practitioners, the PA or the nurse practitioner, who were each seeing between 20 and 30 patients a day, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Okay. And, but beyond that, it was really, really interesting because now – Here's where I think a certification would have benefited the government because we had the FBI agent actually talking about the fact that it takes 15 minutes of time to render a 99213 to each patient. So this led to the medically impop, you know, impossible or improbable days. Well, we're now having to educate the attorneys for the client to a certain degree, because they are healthcare centered and they, they get it to a certain degree and they're, they're very good attorneys. One of them's right. a former prosecutor. Um, but we're having to now go back and educate the prosecutors at the Department of Justice to understand that the time is only relevant prior to 2021 if it was based on counseling and or coordination of care. We we score the levels of service based on the history, the exam, and the medical decision-making for a new patient or for an established patient, two out of the three. And it doesn't matter which two of the three there are if you're following AMA guidelines. Look, you know, we talk about it from an auditing perspective where, you know, for us, we look at the medical decision-making. 
in co- you know, in conjunction with medical necessity and then one of the other two aspects of the history and or exam. So, I mean, this is this is a prime example of, you know, not getting it right and getting tagged hard. I mean, th- this is an example of if you took like four different easy to misunderstand policies about healthcare billing and put them in like the washing machine. And then you had like this hodgepodge of things, right? And and look, I think the, the client didn't have a precise understanding of how these rules work. The government had a not very good understanding of how these rules work. And what ends up happening by the time we come in is there's a lot of aspersions or uh, aspersions being cast or conclusions being reached based on very poor understanding of how these policies come together, right? And that's everything from, you know, it does not take by rule 15 minutes uh, or, or in 2021, it's 20 minutes. It doesn't take that amount of time to render a medically necessary 99213 in every instance. Frankly, you know, you can run a patient in in 2021 and run them through their well-managed hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, refill their meds, are out the door in eight minutes, and that's a 99214. So that's one thing, right? The second right. thing is the second thing is now we've got these nurse practitioners and PAs seeing patients. Sometimes they're under Medicare, and so the physician has to be. Uh, having had to have created a plan of care and be immediately available. Sometimes they're under private payers and the private payers say, well, just bill it under the the clinician, the physician, as long as you can reach them on the telephone, regardless of where he or she is. So all these things came together. And, you know, look, I think anytime going back to what we talked about, uh, effective compliance plans that you can implement among your team, you know, some of this started for better or worse with, some imprecise understandings of some aspects of the rules by this client. And then the the government came in and just blew that to, you know, a scale of 25 times beyond what it should have been and under any circumstances, right? Because they didn't understand any of it. That's right. And, 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 and the sad thing about this is once a provider is arrested and, you know, whether they're charged or not, you know, they're booted by contractual obligation out of all of their participation agreements with the commercial payers. I mean, this one provider has been booted out of every single plan that he was participating with. Well, and look, this is, I've been saying this as long as I've been in this industry, it's enormously unfair reputational damage that the government inflicts in those situations, because the moment they bring any kind of case against you, out goes the press release that describes and, and, you know, very, graphic and, and, you know, titillating to the extent, you know, healthcare news can be titillating, right? Like titillating details about what you do, right? Like what happens with the patients. And oftentimes by the time you get to the settlement or the resolution, you know, it goes in favor of this person. And of course that's all buried, right? But, you know, the the reputational damage is incredibly difficult to undo. And and, I mean, look, to bring it back, those are things that we can't stop. But I do think that's where it becomes important that whether it's incident two, like we're talking about today, or other aspects of compliance, making sure that compliance is something that seems grippable by people in your organization and they understand what their job duties are and how to execute them. And the, the policies and procedures you have in place are meaningful and manageable, right? Because, you know, you've done this probably 10 times as many times as I have, but you go into a practice and they give you this enormous compliance plan, but then you talk to the people about how they learn compliance and it's just somebody just tells them what to do. (laughs) And if it's wrong, heaven help us all. 
Yeah, I, I usually laugh when somebody hands me a, a three-ring binder and they go, this is my compliance program, uh, because it, it, more often than not, it's nothing more than a paperweight. Um, because if it's not a living, breathing document and the last time you updated it was five years ago, it's, it's, it's useless. But the last couple of minutes that you and I actually have together, um, there's a couple of things, right? I want to talk about two aspects of the Incident 2 rule, and then I want to turn it over to you for you to give kind of your takeaways to our viewers, our listeners on what they can and should be doing to at least to the best of what is available, mitigate their risk of getting it wrong. So two things. One, when we talk about incident two, general supervision goes out the window, right? General supervision is out the window. We're talking about one of two types of supervision. We're talking about either direct supervision or we're talking about personal supervision. And again, right. direct supervision is meaning that the physician has to be physically present in the office suite. They can't be down the hall, on another floor, in a hospital that's connected to right. the professional building by a bridge. But it also doesn't mean that they have to be physically in the room with the right. patient at the time the services are done, right? So I'm, right. I'm, I'm square on that definition, right? Right, that's that in the, in the quote office suite and immediately available to assist. Got it. Now, you raised the second uh, uh, aspect to where I was actually going to go. Immediately available. There is no definition to the term immediately available. This is one of these where you have to create your policy and your policy will have to be adhered to. You know, I have right. a very good friend. He's going to be coming on one of my podcasts down the road, David Zetter. Um, great guy. Oh, love him. Like, love David. Have known David forever. <clears throat> really a fascinating guy to watch how he's um, um, really blossomed in this industry above what he was when I first met him. Um, and anyways, we'll, we'll get to that. But he and I had a great conversation about Incident 2. And um, we were talking about immediately available. And, 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 you know, his opinion is that a physician should be no more than 30 seconds away. I'm okay with that if that's what your written policy is and that's what you can adhere to. But don't pigeonhole yourself, which is my point, into... I, I agree with you. Go ahead, please. No, I, I think you should define a policy. I mean, it's not, you know like beat the clock, right? Like I love game shows, right? Somebody's like, it's not like setting a timer. That's not what I would suggest. But I would suggest that there's an expectation that the physician is probably seeing another patient and that physician should be interrupted as needed. That physician should be able to, you know, have that patient hold on while the physician goes to address what the physician needs to address. I mean, I cannot, I can't even venture a guess as what percentage of incident two visits require physician intervention. I'm guessing it's probably like under 1%, probably a bit under 1%. But having these policies in place shows you two things, right? It gives you a marker for your own compliance as people come in and out of your organization. More importantly, it shows that you have a culture of compliance that lives in the real world and is focused on, we understand the policy, here's how we comply with it, right? And so I think those are the two big things. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. So in in closing, what what are your what is or are your takeaway message or messages for 
the viewers or listeners of this podcast today? Well, well, moving past Don't Do It, I will say, I think it's critical. One of the most critical things that you can do as an organization is understand of the payers who are paying your claims, what are their policies when nurse practitioners and physician assistants treat patients? Like, what is that policy? How do we follow it for each payer? We don't expect the physician to follow it. What then has to be understood, I mean, Medicare typically has the strictest policy in terms of this notion of incident to and this, you know, pre-created physician plan of care. That's where your policies need to step in and bridge the gap like we just talked about. How often does the physician need to be involved in the patient's care? What involvement does that it, well, how does what shape does that involvement need to take, right? So it doesn't say the physician needs to have a face-to-face with the patient every six months to be involved. So what if the physician reviews the record every six months and writes a note and says, I, this is what I'm observing. This is what I might change. What if they see the patient every year? You have to understand that stuff, put it into policy, and then work off that policy. And And, and finally, you have to be willing to say, we expect our clinicians to provide high quality care, right? I don't think any organization says otherwise. If that means physician plans of care being changed unexpectedly, if patients are bringing up things that need to be resolved, we can't bring the physician in to deal with that all the time, then we have to understand from a policy perspective that that will go out under the nurse practitioner or PA when that's what the rule requires. And rather than expectation setting for the clinician that says 100% of the nurse practitioner's Medicare cases are going to be billed incident two, you know, because I'm going to see the patients when they're new and then I'm going to hand them off to the nurse practitioner, you know, set realistic benchmarks for what you think that should be based on what the patient population looks like and just live with the results of it, right? Like it's better expectation setting. It's completely unrealistic to think you could have all these visits be incident to under Medicare's policies. That would be my takeaway. Awesome. All right. Well, everybody, this brings us to the end of our podcast today. Uh, I can't express my gratitude, uh, Scott, for you coming on the show, sitting down with me sharing your knowledge with our viewers, our listeners, to help them navigate the murky waters of not only the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, but of the commercial payers as well on uh, a a topic that is so uh, controversial. And, you know, the thing that I will say is, you know, Scott and I had an opportunity to conduct an interview with the outgoing administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Seema Verma. And we posed the question to her, about the fact that, you know, there's rumors that incident two billing provisions are potentially going to go away. And her comment was, no, there's no intent at this point, um, or there's no indication at this point that we're going to get rid of them, but we are going to continue to clarify those services. And I think in this new administration, um, they are heavily regulated, um, and I'm not going to get into politics in any way, shape, or form. Um, but, you know, they are heavily regulated, and I expect to see some more clarifications and some more things changing um, very shortly. Yeah, look, Democratic administrations tend to regulate. Republican administrations tend to deregulate, for better or for worse. Whatever your position happens to be on that, that's how it usually goes. I appreciate you saying that because that's what will probably keep me out of trouble with any of our listeners that – uh, uh, get angry if I even bring up the word politics. So with that said, Scott, thank you so much for being on the show. I, I hope that you'll come back again to do another full podcast segment with me. 
Um, we are going to have some upcoming shows uh, with some really incredible special guests. I think we have uh, a, a great lineup coming down the pike for a lot of folks. Um, prior to the show, Scott and I uh, had a chance to uh, chat just for a moment about our Red Sox-Yankees rivalry. Uh, here's what I will say. I'm winning at this point. Go Red Sox. Uh, good luck to all of you Yankee fans. Again, this is Sean Weiss, the compliance guy, signing off. We'll see you again real soon. Thanks, Sean. And fire Aaron Boone.